0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4. Today we come to the longest section in the book of Job. This section runs from chapter 4 to chapter 31, and it consists of a series of dialogues between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. At this point, we're going to begin moving through the book of Job at a faster pace. After opening this series with three sermons on three chapters. Today, we're going to address four chapters in one sermon. And so, we are not going to be moving verse by verse. Uh, If we did, we would spend several years in this rich book, and I'm sure that would be a worthwhile cause, Uh, but I have deemed that it would be better to take a bigger picture view of these chapters Today, we will address the first of Eliphaz's three speeches and Job's reply to it. Now, we already know that these three friends came to Job with the best of intentions. Chapter 2, verse 11 said that they came to show him sympathy and comfort him. They showed and demonstrated by uh, their being present with Job for seven days and seven nights that they had compassion on their friend. And they felt his pain. And they sat with him that entire time even though they had nothing to say. But after Job finally opens his mouth and speaks in Job chapter 3. He, he curses the day of his birth. He expresses his longing for death. He he complains that God just won't let him die. These three friends finally feel compelled to respond. And what follows is a master class in bad counseling. These three friends who came with the best of intentions gave Job some of the worst counsel. But it wasn't because their hearts were in the wrong place, but it was because their theology was in the wrong place their system of understanding God, man, and God's ways of dealing with man were so fundamentally flawed that they were incapable of adequately counseling and comforting their suffering friend. And so as we look at how Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar counseled Job, we have an opportunity to examine our own thoughts and our own attitudes towards suffering. Because it's only a matter of time And perhaps the time is already here for some of us that we find ourselves in the same position as these three friends, in the position of of having the responsibility of comforting and counseling someone who is in a deep season of grief. And when we do, will we counsel our friends like these three friends counseled Job with their flawed assumptions about suffering? Or will we understand that there is more to suffering than they knew, a gospel-centered way of understanding suffering so that, so that it completely transforms what we say and how we say it? That is our aim this morning. And so the title of this sermon is What Not to Say to the Suffering. We're going to divide our text today into three points First, a kind man's counsel. Second, a broken man's response. And third, a hopeless man's prayer. First, a kind man's counsel. The first of Job's three friends to speak is Eliphaz the Temanite. Now, Teman was a place in Edom that was renowned for its wisdom. And it appears that the same was true of Eliphaz the Temanite. He speaks As the first of the three friends who have gathered to comfort Job, which indicates that he was the most senior of the three. God also addresses Eliphaz in chapter 42. When God finally addresses the three friends, he calls upon Eliphaz specifically as the representative of the three friends. Which again speaks to his seniority. And experience. And that is important for us to recognize because it tells us that Eliphaz was not an inexperienced young man. He was not new to the profoundly deep and troubling experience of suffering. This was an older man, an older man who had a reputation for wisdom. And that meant that his views didn't just represent his own personal opinions. They actually reflected the values and understandings about suffering held by his culture and in his time. And as we will see, in many ways, his views reflect our own culture's views as well. Now, besides being wise, Eliphaz also appears to have been kind. He was a kind man especially when you, we compare him to the other two friends, to, to build that into Zophar. Those two are rash, and they are direct, and they are confrontational. But Eliphaz, Eliphaz is different. He has a softer tone. He takes a gentler approach. And we see that in the opening lines of his speech. In verse one, it says, Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, if one ventures a word with you, Will you be impatient? Eliphaz begins by gently probing Job with a question. And even as he prepares the way to provide Job with some correction in verses 5 and 6, he he actually begins that with some encouragement first. He says, you have instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling. You have made firm the feeble knees. This is typical for Eliphaz, he asks questions rather than drawing conclusions. He makes suggestions rather than telling Job what to do. And he tries to encourage Job. He, he tries to tell Job, listen, Job, things are going to get better. Okay, This is, this is as low as you're going to get. This is as, as bad as it's going to look. Things are going to get better. Just just seek the Lord, trust him, and he will provide. But behind his gentle words and his well-meaning counsel lie several fundamental flaws. The first is in verse 5, where he begins his correction. He says, but now it, that is pain, suffering, now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Eliphaz is saying, Job, you helped others. You were there for those who were weak, who were struggling, who were suffering. And now that it's come upon you, can't you help yourself? If you taught people how to trust the Lord, can't you trust the Lord in your darkest moment? And the word that Eliphaz uses about Job is, you are impatient. You are impatient. Now, there are many words we could use to describe Job's present experience. Impatient is probably near the bottom of the list. Eliphaz, he does not grasp the depths of Job's pain. He sees Job instead as an impatient person, like a spoiled child who wants something but can't get it when he wants it. Now, it's true that Job was impatient for death, but impatience isn't isn't his problem, His problem is that everything he loves in this world has been suddenly taken away from him without explanation. Heaven is silent as he sits in the ash heap covered with boils from head to toe, having lost his ten children, having been betrayed by his own wife. Impatience, not the right word. To characterize Job's response as impatience, was to completely mischaracterize and minimize his pain. Now, this is one of the most significant challenges for those who are trying to counsel those who are suffering. It is the challenge of understanding that person's pain. We we may try to use words to describe that person's pain only to say, really? Only Only to hear them say, do you think that's how I feel? You really think that? or we try to assure them that everything's going to be okay without realizing that these wounds, these scars, this pain, they will carry with them for the rest of their lives. We don't understand their pain because we don't take the time to wait, to listen, and to try to feel what that suffering friend must be feeling. We don't don't take the time to to feel and to cultivate and to grow empathy in our hearts to actually suffer with those who suffer we we come at people's problems with solutions rather than compassion we say okay this is what you need to do this is what you need to change about your circumstances or about your perspective rather than saying this is how i know you're feeling Now, it may be unlikely that we will ever fully understand another person's pain because we're not omniscient, we are not God, but we must try. And it is in the trying to understand that we do far more to comfort our suffering friends than we know. Eliphaz's second and more fundamental flaw is in verses seven and eight. He says, remember who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Now these are two of the most important verses in the book of Job. And we will read different iterations of these verses throughout the book of Job. Because they reveal the essence of what Job's three friends believed about the world. These three friends believed that the world is a place of perfect justice. Where the innocent live long, where the upright prosper. And if anyone dies young, if anyone suffers calamity, it is because they deserved it. It is because they were wicked. It's because they were the objects of God's wrath. In verse 8, Eliphaz gives us a version of this general maxim that you reap what you sow, you reap what you sow. And, And that is a biblical principle. When I was recently taking my children through the book of Proverbs, this principle came up again and again. Kids, if you live like this, these are the consequences. But if you honor the Lord, if you are generous to others, if you are kind to them, if you are gentle with your words, it will bring about blessing. This is a biblical principle. But Eliphaz says that this principle applies all the time. It is without exception. Now, he doesn't say outright that Job deserved his suffering. He is too gentle for that. But he does imply it. He's saying to Job, Job, you and I both know how the world works. Okay, You you know that these kinds of things just don't happen to good people. So if all these bad things have come upon you then what does that say about your character? What does that say about the status of your relationship with God? Now the question is, is Eliphaz right? Is Eliphaz right? We know as a general principle that yes, you live without self-control, your life will become chaotic, you treat people poorly and you will receive the same, Both the Old and the New Testament affirm that there is, indeed, often a direct connection between how we live and what we receive and what we experience, but but this principle is not without exception. In fact, when you think about it, the Bible is replete with examples of suffering saints. I mean, just think about the beginning of history. At the very dawn of time, which brother was murdered? It was righteous Abel, murdered by angry Cain or when you think about the 12 sons of Jacob who was it who was thrown into prison for a crime that he did not commit was it the jealous brothers who sold their brother into slavery or was it the brother who walked in his integrity and fled from the temptations of lust Or faithful Uzziah, one of David's mighty men who faithfully discharged his responsibility to fight on behalf of Israel, to defend the honor of his king, well, he was sent to his death because that king lusted after his wife. There are examples all across scripture, culminating, of course, in Christ himself, the spotless innocent lamb of God, crucified and killed by wicked men. And so also there is Job, Job standing in the same footsteps as these. Job was a man who feared God. Job was a man who turned away from evil. Job was described as a blameless and upright man. And he is the one who lost everything. Eliphaz is wrong, and we know with absolute certainty that he is wrong because of what God said about Job in chapters 1 and 2. Job was innocent, but his children perished. Job was upright, but he was cut off from his wealth and from his health. Job did not plow iniquity, and yet he reaped trouble all the same. This was the fundamental problem with Job's three friends. They had no category for innocent suffering. They didn't know what to say when the righteous suffered other than, well, they must not have been righteous. And that is why they were completely incapable of comforting and counseling their friend. Now, Eliphaz continues by describing in verses 12 to 21 this mystical experience that seems to confirm his point he talks about this word that came to him stealthily in the night and and dread comes upon him and his bones are shaking and this spirit glides past his face and the hair on his flesh stands up and this this spirit says to him can mortal man be in the right before god can a man be pure before his maker Eliphaz is telling this story to confirm what he has just said, that no one is righteous before God, that everyone deserves suffering. And so Job, if you have suffered, you have deserved this because you have done something wrong. Now, you don't need me to point out that this was not a good idea. I mean, Job, think about where he is in his relationship with God. Think about where he is in his spiritual condition. Job feels abandoned by God. Job feels cursed by God. And here is Eliphaz talking about this intimate spiritual experience he just had in the night. It was kind of spooky, but it was so interesting. It was yet another reminder to Job of just how bad things were for him. God is speaking to his friends But he is not speaking to him. And so there must be something wrong with him. Next, Eliphaz describes the characteristics of the fool in chapter five, verses one to seven. He says, the fool's children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate. There's no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. Now, Eliphaz makes it sound like he's talking about some guy out there, some imaginary person who's a fool, and all these things are happening to this fool. But but the clear implication here is that he's talking about Job. Job is the fool here. Job is the one whose children have been crushed, whose, who, whose harvest has been eaten by others, whose wealth has been pented over and stolen by those who thirst. And we know that Eliphaz is talking here about Job because he says in verse two, surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. I mean, that, that is a, a better word to describe what Job is feeling. Job is vexed. He's vexed about what has happened to him. He is troubled by it. And Eliphaz says, Job, vexation kills the fool. You may be feeling... Vexed. You may be feeling jealous right now, whether of the rich or of the dead or or perhaps of me because I haven't suffered what you have suffered. But remember, jealousy slays the simple. Don't be overwhelmed by your emotions because only fools let their emotions take over. We'll see why that was bad advice in a few short moments. But before we do that, Eliphaz ends his speech with some good advice. Some 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 good words that all of us would do well to imitate, but the problem here is that he, he gives this good advice for the wrong reasons. He says in verse eight and nine, as for me, again, he's saying, well, if I were you, Job, giving a suggestion, as for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number, and then he writes this short poem about God's majesty and power, which is, Which is all true, which is all glorious. This is good advice. Seek the Lord, Job. Commit your cause to Him, Job, because God does great and marvelous things. But the question is why? What reason does Eliphaz give to Job to seek the Lord? Well, it's because of all the good things that it will bring him. Verses 19 to 27, he says, He will deliver you from six troubles. In famine he will redeem you from death. In war from the power of the sword you shall laugh at destruction and famine. Your tent shall be at peace. Your offspring shall be many. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age. In other words, Eliphaz is saying, Job, seek God for his gifts. Bless the Lord and he will bless you. Submit to his will and you will get what you want. Do you see what's happening here? Eliphaz is urging Job to seek the Lord for the very reasons Satan accused Job of worshiping God. Satan may have disappeared from the narrative, but he he is still at work. His, His voice is still very much heard, first through his wife, now through his friend. He is tempting Job to give up his integrity and to replace it with what you could call a mercenary faith. God, I will follow you, but only if you give me what I want. Eliphaz had good motives, but he had bad counsel. And this bad counsel was the fruit of bad doctrine. If we were to give people the right counsel, we must first have the right doctrine, the right views of suffering and of justice, and of ultimately God himself. Because if we don't, we may end up doing more of Satan's work than God's. You want to know what not to say to the suffering? Well, read the book of Job. And now we get to hear Job's response, leading to our second point, a broken man's response. In verses 1 to 3, Job replies directly to Eliphaz. Eliphaz had warned him, Job, vexation kills the fool. Job says, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. Job is saying, Eliphaz, you want to talk about my vexation? Well, if you could weigh it, In scales. It would be heavier than all the sand of the sea. Job is telling Eliphaz, my friend, you do not know what you are talking about. You do not understand my pain at all. Eliphaz is saying, Job, don't get vexed. Job is saying, my vexation has already consumed me. But what is it that Job is most vexed about? You'll be surprised by the answer. Verse 4 says, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Job's vexation doesn't come primarily from the loss of his wealth, the loss of his health, or even the loss of his children. His vexation comes from feeling like God is at war against him that God has fired his arrows at him, that God has sunk his poison-tipped darts deep into his flesh, so deep that the poison runs into his very soul. That is what vexes him most. David Kleins writes, it is not the physical pain or the mental torment that weighs him down. It is the consciousness that he has become God's enemy. And there is nothing more terrifying of a thought than that. That you are God's enemy. That the omnipotent creator and ruler of the universe has set his gaze against you. And he has aimed his arrows at you. Job can't bear this thought and so in verses 8 to 10, he repeats his longing for death that we first heard in chapter 3. But here, Job adds another reason for why he prefers death over life. In verses 8, 9, and 10, he says, Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing for, listen, For I have not denied the words of the Holy One. You see what he's saying? He's saying, Lord, take me now before I deny you and I deny your words. I haven't yet, but I'm close. I'm close to cursing you, I'm close to denying your words. I'm almost out of strength. Take me now. Let me die before it's too late. Job has lost everything except one thing. The one thing he holds, the one thing that he would not give up even at the urging of his wife was his integrity. The integrity of his faith. The integrity of trusting that God is still good, God is still sovereign, God still knows what he is doing but He's about to lose it. And so he begs God to take him before that happens. Now in verses 14 to 23, Job tells his friends what he thinks about their advice so far. He begins with these scathing words in verse 14. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. The word for kindness there is the same word for steadfast love, chesed, God's covenant love. Upon his covenant people to pursue them and to restore them. And Job is saying that friends owe one another steadfast love. They owe one another, has said, covenant love. But these friends, these friends have withheld steadfast love from their friend. And in so doing, they have forsaken the fear of the Almighty. What is Job getting at? Well, he uses this picture to describe this withholding of kindness. He, he describes what is known today as a wadi, W-A-D-I, a wadi, a valley or ravine in the desert that has seasonal water and refreshment for animals and people traveling through the desert. This wadi is supposed to be refreshing with these torrential streams passing through it. He even describes this place as having ice and snow that, fall, that had fallen from the high up mountaintops to refresh weary travelers in the desert. But when the snow melts and the water evaporates in the heat, imagine the disappointment. As the traveling caravans turn away from their course with the anticipation and hope of refreshment, they instead find a dry and barren Wasteland instead. And that is how Job felt about the counsel of his friends. He was hoping to find refreshment. He was hoping to find renewed strength to continue on through this desert, but instead he finds a barren wasteland. And so Job describes the feeling of the caravan travelers in verse 20. He says, They are ashamed because they were confident. They come there and are disappointed. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Job is ashamed. His hopes were disappointed. And even more so, because he says that they were afraid. You see my calamity and are afraid. They're afraid that that they might catch his calamity like someone might catch COVID. COVID. This disease might spread to them and so they are keeping their distance lest they fall under the same spell of suffering. Now Job's friends have not only failed to do good, they have actually managed to make things worse. In the prologue to the book of Job, in the 1560 Geneva Bible, the the one who wrote that said this, these friends came unto him under pretense of consolation and yet they tormented him more than did all his affliction. I mean, that's what's at stake when we counsel those who suffer. We can torment them more than all their affliction if our words carry no comfort and hope. Job ends chapter 6 with a plea to his friends to actually say something, something that will help him, something that will give him a starting point, something of substance. He says in verse 24, Teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. Stop talking about the fool out there, the vexed person out there. Talk about me. What have I done wrong? And in verse 28, but now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. He, he pleads with them, friends, would you, would you just look at me? Because their gaze was averted. They could not bear the sight of this poor, wretched man with boils covering him from his head to his feet and all over his face. They were looking anywhere, But at this wretched man, he says, look at me. I will not lie to you. I will tell you the truth. If I have done something wrong, I will confess it. Just tell me what I have done wrong. Now, as we turn to chapter 7, Job's reply to Eliphaz ends in a surprising way. Because as we will see, he turns his attention away from his friends and back towards God. And this leads to our final point, a hopeless man's prayer. As chapter 7 begins, it's not clear who Job is speaking to. But we can discern the audience as the chapter unfolds. For example, verse 12, he says, Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? His friends are not guarding him, but Job has accused God of setting a hedge around him that keeps him from death. Verse 14, he says, Then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. Job's friends are powerless when Job is asleep, but God is still very much present. And verse 20, he says, If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Again, a statement not of Job's friends, but of Job's God. And so what we see here in chapter 7 is Job's first recorded prayer following the devastation of all his loss. And it begins with a description of his pain. He talks to God about what he feels. Verses 1-6, to Has not man a hard service on earth? And are not his days, like the days of a hired hand, like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages. So I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, "When shall I arise?" But the night is long, and I'm full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. This is a man who has lost all the purpose in his life. All that he feels, all that he experiences, all that he envisions for his future is pain. Time has no meaning for him. His nights are sleepless. His days run by without change and without hope. He has been given months, not of life, not of pleasure, not of friendship, months of emptiness. His body is an endless cycle of pain as his skin hardens in loathsome sores, only to break out afresh and start all over again. Job, he doesn't even bother to wash the dirt away from his body or to wipe away the worms that are crawling on him because he sees himself as a man who is already dead, as a man who belongs six feet below the ground. These are the words of a bitter man. And he freely admits that in verse 11. He says, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And now he gets to the point, to what he really wants to say to God. In verse 16 I loathe my life, I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. That is what Job wanted to say to God. That is what it sounded like for Job to not restrain his mouth. Leave me alone. I hate this life that you have given me. Just leave me alone. Let me die and stop hurting me. Job wants God to Leave him alone because he sees God as the cause of his pain. He sees God as the author of his suffering. God's presence used to bring him comfort. God's thoughts of him used to make him feel loved. But now that awareness of God's presence and God's thoughts torment him. We see that in verse 17 where he says, What is man that you make so much of him? And that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning, and test him every moment. If you know your Bible, you'll say, hey, that sounds familiar. That sounds like the famous words in Psalm 8. What, what is man? That you are mindful of him. Except the psalmist says, the son of man that you care for him. Job takes those opening lines of wonder from Psalm 8 and turns them into a nightmare. Who am I that you, almighty God, would spend so much of your attention and effort tormenting? Job doesn't want God to draw near to him. Job doesn't want God to think about him. He just wants God to leave him alone. Now, the climax of Job's prayer is in verses 20 and 21, as Job ends with these three burning questions. Why? Why? Have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Job asks these questions to God in anguish, not knowing the answers. He believes that God has made him the mark of his arrows, that God has seen Job as a burden to eliminate, that God has refused to pardon his transgressions and iniquities, and he's pouring out the fullness of his wrath upon him. Job asks, not knowing why. But for the Christian, for the Christian, we need not ask these questions and wonder at the answer. Why has God made us his mark? Well, he marks us with the seal of the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. Why have we become a burden to him? Because Christ has voluntarily taken our burden of sin and guilt upon himself to suffer in our place on the cross. Why does he not pardon our transgressions and take away our iniquities? Well, he has. Because Christ himself was pierced for our transgressions. Christ himself was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus died in our place for our sins on the cross so that we could be pardoned. Because of Christ, none who trust in him as Lord and Savior ever have to wonder if God will pardon us for sin. None who trust in him will ever have to fear that God has turned us into his enemies. We already were his enemies. He already was against us, but he loved his enemies and brought them to himself and made us his friends forever. We read Job in the light of the cross shining on these words with a glory that Job did not know. But we do because Christ has come. Christ has died And Christ has risen again. So, how do we counsel those who suffer? Not with the self righteous, moralistic, condescending words of Job's friends, but with the saving power of the gospel. We don't tell people that the righteous don't suffer, we tell them that the righteous one did suffer. Eliphaz asked, who that was innocent ever perished? Well, the answer is Jesus. Jesus perished. The innocent one did die, and the upright one was cut off, so that even if we suffer in this world, even if we do what is right and experience all that is wrong, even if we lose everything, we would still be rich we would still be rich with faith, rich with hope, rich with the love of God. My friends, if if we are to counsel those who suffer, we must look to the one who did suffer because only he can help them. When, When we sow righteousness but reap sickness, or when we do good but are repaid with evil, or when we live in the fear of the Lord and then lose what we love the most, we find in Christ a savior who knows, who understands, who lived through it all as our brother. And so if you are suffering, come to the one who suffered and you will find rest for your soul. Feel him leading you by the hand, calling you by name to to come and to rest in his presence. And and my friends, when your suffering friends or your suffering family members do not have the strength to go to Jesus themselves, then let us not counsel them with empty words. Let us not tell them to not be vexed. Let us not tell them to go to God because of all the things that God will give them. No, let us help them find their way back to the one who suffered and died for their sins so that all their pain and all their suffering would turn to joy in his presence. Let's pray. Father, what deep, burdened, lamenting words we have read this morning words perhaps that some of us do not relate to but words perhaps that some of us do relate to we pray that your promise that your grace in christ mediated and delivered to us through the spirit would indeed be sufficient for all who suffer and who all all who will suffer and we pray that you would equip us as a church To counsel those who suffer, not like Eliphaz, but like Christ. Like the one who did suffer. The one who knows that the innocent do perish. That Christ would be all in all. That he would be sufficient for us in all of our suffering. Continue, Father, to shape our minds and our hearts through the gift that we have in the book of Job.